Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 7. Look at Mark 7 together and due to the length of the text, I'll actually read it throughout the message instead of reading it all at one time beforehand. Mark chapter 7. As you're turning there, I want to make an observation and ask a question. Having been married for almost 12 years now, I'm just beginning to learn, surprisingly, that men and women have largely different conceptions of the word, wait for it, clean, clean. Men, I don't know if you've, here's the question, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, maybe it's just my relationship, but when my wife, (laughs) no need for amens, (laughs) When my wife tells me that uh, she needs to clean the house, I typically would say something like, well, it's already clean. I mean, for me, clean is the toys are put away, the chairs are pushed in under the table, the dishes are in the sink, uh, the clothes are in the laundry basket. Yet she only calls that picked up. That's not clean. The same is also true of the children. If you have children, I typically think, because the bath time routine for five children is so involved that they look pretty clean to me. If I can't smell them from 15 feet away, I think that's clean. I don't see any smudges on their face. And yet, she is just so persistent about soap and water. She thinks that that's clean. It's differing definitions. It's a different conception Some of you may have been raised in homes where there's a pre-wash to the dishes before you actually put it in the dishwasher. I don't know why you would do that, but it's confusing for the rest of us who have a responsibility to unload the dishwasher, and we end up putting only half-washed dishes into the sink because it's hard to tell what is actually clean. Differing definitions of clean in the home can be laughable. But what about different definitions of cleanliness before a holy God? It's not quite as funny, but it is just as confusing. When you look at the house that is your life, the one that God sees, the one in which, for those of you who are believers, the one in which He lives, the one in which His Holy Spirit resides, Would you say that things are clean today? When you look at your soul and you examine yourself before the Lord this morning as we're about to approach communion, would you say that you're pure before Him today? How can you even know? Saved and unsaved alike, we all know what it's like to feel dirty before a holy God, to feel a shame, a guilt, a reluctance to be in His presence. Sometimes blatant sin has defiled our life and we feel a nagging, guilty conscience. And for some, this feeling comes through a seemingly incessant occurrence of small things, a harsh word here or there, a a lustful look, half-truths, a complaining spirit that you just can't seem to conquer, a a biting tongue. For others, this sense of defilement before God 
Maybe something big. And maybe something big from your past. You can call it a mistake. You can keep it hidden from those that you respect. But I think many, if not most of us, have done something in the past, whether it was in a relationship or something we did to our body or something we did with our body towards someone else that stained our soul deeply and the thought of that occasionally comes back and when we ask the question am I pure and clean before God it becomes harder to answer that with confidence there's another category of people who feel unclean before the Lord and these things are the less obvious now for some of you you will not relate with this at all but you need to be sympathetic for a moment because there are some And I've met people in each of these categories who feel unworthy, unclean, guilty before God for things that really aren't necessarily in their control. Some people feel like they're distant from God's presence because of the way that they look, their body type. Some people because of joblessness or childlessness or divorce or wayward children can feel like maybe they're in a different category. The simple point that I'm trying to make in this is that we all have differing definitions of what it means to be clean before God. Some of you may be able to confidently say that everything's fine, but some of you are less confident. Some feel dirty, they defiled when they shouldn't. Some feel clean and uh, impeccable before the Lord when they probably should be more concerned about their relationship before Him. So the question before us is, how can we know that we're clean before God? We're pure in His sight. Mark sets us up for an answer to that question in our text today. As you know, he's been sharing the good news, the good news par excellence, the good news that Jesus is the divine Messiah and... He's also been showing how to follow this Jesus. You remember that. He constantly bounces back and forth between who Jesus is and how we should respond to him. The last half of chapter 6 that we just studied this past week and then earlier in December before we took our break made Christ's power as the divine Son of God exceedingly clear We saw him feed the 5,000 plus people with this creative miracle. We saw him walk on the sea and single-handedly banish disease in Gennesaret. We have seen his power on display and now Mark begins to turn his focus once more to our response. How do we follow this Jesus? Specifically here, he answers a new question. How can we be pure before God. This lesson on following Jesus, though, interestingly, does not take place on a peaceful plain. It does not take place in friendly territory. It takes place couched in bitter controversy, bitter name-calling. Jesus, through this conflict, actually provides clarity concerning how we can be clean before God, but he does so in mainly negative terms, and I need to warn you of that before we get into the message. 
Because when you walk away from Mark chapter 6, you're so encouraged about Christ's power and His ability to come to you in your moment of need. And then when you get to chapter 7, it's just, you wonder like, why is He being so critical? Why is He being so harsh? But we have to be fair to the text. This is the way that Jesus wanted to teach us what it means to be pure before God. And he primarily presents it to us in negative terms. And so we're going to have to follow that to be faithful to the text this morning. Now I'm going to draw out the positive before concluding the message. But I want you to know that what we have in front of us are two correctives. Jesus is trying to fix some misconceptions about our purity before God. And so there will be negative. Specifically, the text this morning serves as two correctives concerning our cleanness before God that will enable us to follow Him properly. And to help you take notes if you're doing that, I'll give them to you ahead of time. First, Jesus corrects our flawed remedy for impurity. The flawed remedy, this, the way that we try to remedy our purity and our cleanliness before God that just doesn't work. You'll see that in verses 1 through 13. The second thing that it'll do is correct our superficial identity of impurity. We tend to only view it skin deep, and he's going to fix that conception. So let's start off with this first corrective. Jesus corrects our flawed remedy for impurity in verses 1 through 13. And as I said, we'll read this as we work our way through. But notice this before we jump into the text, that you're going to see the Pharisees, Jesus' earthly enemies, if you will, accuse Jesus and his disciples of something, and then he, in return, is going to condemn them for something. They base their authority against him on their forefathers. He's going to base his authority against them on the word of God. And what we're going to see here is just a clash, a monumental clash of Jesus' authority versus the Pharisees. Look at verse 1. As the Pharisees make their accusation, it says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, what we have here is we have official representation from Jerusalem. This is a big deal in the book of Mark because Jesus will eventually make his way down to Jerusalem and this is where he will face his most bitter controversy leading to ultimately his death on the cross but the fact that they came from jerusalem just shows us that these were the official religious leaders of the day they weren't some sect of judaism this was the mainstream if you could imagine an imam coming from mecca to teach somebody about islam or a cardinal coming from Rome to teach somebody about Catholicism. These were the official Jews coming from Jerusalem, bringing their legal help to bring accusation against Jesus, and specifically, they're looking to entrap him. For those of you with legal backgrounds, you're familiar with the term entrapment. <laughs> you're looking for something to make sure that this guy's guilty. I mean, ultimately, we know that there was already bad blood. Jesus had offended them publicly in chapter 3 by healing a man on the Sabbath when they thought that that was taboo. And then in the chapter to follow, he criticizes them publicly, saying that they have blasphemed the Holy Spirit and that there's no forgiveness for them because they were attributing his miracles to Satan. So, not the friendliest of starts. 
They're pretty angry about that. And they're looking for some way to catch him. And this is what they come up with. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That's the best they could come up with. They couldn't even find a charge against Jesus. They just accused these guys of not washing their hands properly. Now, for those of us who think that this sounds like a pretty lame entrapment, it is. But I do want to explain it a little bit because Mark does. Look at verse 3. You see this little parenthesis here. It's going to tell us why this was a big deal. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. Now, let's pause here for a moment. Even though God himself had standards of purity and impurity for his people, we read about those in Leviticus, this little parenthesis explains for us that the disciples weren't merely being unsanitary. And it's also showing us that they weren't really breaking a command of God. They were breaking the tradition of men. You have to carefully note the way that Jesus describes this thing. It's not a hygiene thing. Everybody washed their hands in this day. It was normal custom before you ate a meal for a servant to come by, pour water over your hands, and you to rinse them off. And it was a big deal because there were no utensils. People in that day typically sat eating on the floor out of a common bowl, and you know what the utensil was? A piece of bread. And you know how you got it out? With your hand. So everybody's scooping out of the same bowl. And I know that sounds so disgusting to us in our Western context, but that's just how they did it. And normal hand washing was just a normal thing. That wasn't the concern. It's not like, oh, the guys are being unsanitary. We've got Jesus now. It's bigger than that because the way that Paul, I mean, excuse me, Mark describes it here, he says that the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands. And depending on your translation, it's going to say something like properly. The New American Standard says carefully. The New King James in a special way. Uh, the Holman Christian Standard ritually. The NIV ceremonially. Anytime you come to something like this and you see five different translations, translate a word five different ways, you know you've got something interesting on your hands. The literal phrase here, if we were just to take it straight from Greek into English, is they were not washing their hands with a fist. Now, we have no idea what this fist ceremony involved. People have tried to speculate. But the idea behind it is ultimately, just like somebody would have a secret handshake, <laughs> there was a special ritual that they expected people to follow to wash their hands to prepare themselves to eat a meal. But notice... This was the popular religious protocol. It was not God's protocol. Mark is so good about calling it what it is. He says, they're not doing it according to the tradition of men. You need to know that they did not catch the disciples doing anything wrong according to the word of God. This was just purely something man-made. We'll see Mark describe it, the Pharisees and the Jews and the tradition of the elders and the tradition of men and we need to understand a little bit about this. Like, what is this tradition? How is it that they would even think that they could catch these guys on something that wasn't in the Bible? Well, for hundreds of years, there had been a group of extremely zealous men who wanted to help out the Word of God. And the way that they thought they would do that is by erecting another form of law that would come beside the Old Testament version of the Bible. 
The Old Testament Torah, the, the first five books of Moses, that was written down for them from God on Sinai. But there was a, a group of people who began to teach that there was another law that was given to Moses on Sinai, and it wasn't just the one that was written. It was an oral law. It was one that God spoke to Moses. And it wasn't about the what, like what people needed to do. It was about the how, how people needed to do it. And so ultimately, since it was an oral law, it continued to make its way from generation to generation to generation, all the while trying to protect the word of God from being disobeyed. How many of you have ever played a game of telephone where you whisper one thing to another person? Okay, a few of you have. If you haven't asked somebody else about the game afterward, it can get pretty ridiculous. By the time you tell one person another thing and then another thing and another thing, there's always additions, subtractions, and you very rarely end up with the same thing you started with. This isn't even like the game of telephone because the oral tradition never came from God in the first place. But they still passed it on. So they made up something at the beginning, and then they just continued to pass it on, competing with the Word of God. And Mark carefully tells us, like, look, you just need to know, for the Roman readers in his audience, he's saying, look, you need to understand that these Jews, they have other laws other than the Bible, and they subscribe to these things pretty religiously. Look at verse 4. He's going to describe how ridiculous it became. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So here's what you need to understand. The only time in the Old Testament, well, actually two times, in the Old Testament was anybody told to do a ceremonial special hand washing. You know who that was? The priest. See Exodus 20, 30, and 40. They were supposed to do a special hand washing ceremony before partaking of meals that they would eat from sacrifice. And there was one other instance that was just extremely obvious where some men actually needed to do a special hand washing to cleanse themselves for certain hygienic reasons. But it was never prescribed for people to do ceremonial hand washing every time they ate. That was totally not in the Bible. You cannot find it. It was from their tradition. But it started off by taking that command for the priest and then applying it to the people. Not just applying it to the people, but applying it to every meal. And then not only did they apply it to every meal, but then the, the law mushroomed to something else. We see in verse 4 that the Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they wash their Excuse me, in verse 4, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And the word wash there is baptizo. A full body cleansing. They had to immerse themselves when they came from the marketplace because they were afraid that they might have bumped into somebody unclean. So imagine that every time you went to the grocery store, you had to come back and take a shower. But not only that, they added more. It's like an infomercial. There's more. <laughs> the more was, they then said, you know what? It's not just our hands. It's not just our bodies. But now we need special ceremonies to make sure that we wash our cups properly. And so they made up laws for washing different vessels and making sure that these vessels were pure. It was just ridiculous. There's this expansion. An expansion had taken place. It went from priests ceremonially washing hands to sacrifice, for sacrifice, to people ceremonially washing hands to eat. Then that expanding to bodies from the marketplace and then that expanding to the cups. Such is the case or the nature of many religious man-made traditions. 
I remember, I, was, I think it was in high school when I first came across this poem called The Calf Path. I won't read you the whole thing, but I'll read you the first and end, and it gives you a good explanation of how tradition just tends to mushroom our ignorance. One day, through the primeval wood, a calf walked home as good calves should, but made a trail all bent askew, a crooked trail as all calves do. Since then, three hundred years have fled, I infer the calf is dead, but still he left behind his trail, and thereby hangs my mortal tale. Now the poem continues. This, this calf has made this weird path from one place to another, and in the poem, in the next verses, a dog begins to follow that path, and then a sheep follows it, and then the flock of sheep follows it, further expanding the crooked path and enforcing it, and then that becomes a crooked road, and that crooked road then eventually becomes a street, and that street then becomes a city, which turns into a metropolis. But it's this wonky metropolis that's no straight roads, but just all following this calf path. And the author closes it this way, A moral lesson this might teach were I ordained and called to preach. For men are prone to go it blind along the calf paths of the mind. And work away from sun to sun to do what other men have done. They follow in the beaten track and out and in and forth and back. And still their devious course pursue to keep the path that others do. This was the tradition of the elders. It was crooked from the beginning, but a few people started following it. Then it became more popular. And then all of a sudden Mark's able to say all of Jerusalem was doing it, even though it's not in the Bible in the first place. And ultimately, the point that Jesus is going to make is that this religious tradition, this attempt to do something external, to make yourself clean before God, will not work. The charge is unjustified. Verse 5 says, And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, that's Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So they accused Jesus on the basis of external, traditional ritual. And Jesus condemns them for it. This isn't Jesus meek and mild. This is Jesus fully loaded. Notice what he says here in verse 6. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, the verse we read earlier, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then he adds, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Now, if you want to insult a first century Jewish rabbi, call him a hypocrite. Because the word hypocrite literally means to wear a mask. It was highly offensive to the Jews. It came from the world of the Greek theater. The Greeks at that time did not act in a way that we do. The way that they represented their acting was simply through putting on a mask. So when you wore one mask, you were all of a sudden that character, and then you would take that off, you'd wear another mask, and then all of a sudden you were another character. As intriguing as that may be for us, they hated the theater. <laughs> and so he's calling them play actors, mask wearers, totally focused on the external, but hiding something different behind it. And then he unloads. He gives this quote from Isaiah that says, look, your worship is empty. It does nothing. It is only in your lips. It is not a part of your life. And then notice what he says in verse 8 as he summarizes, 
you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. No two things could be more opposite. Leave and hold are opposites. Commandment and traditions are opposites. God and man are opposites. They were doing not just something close, not just something a little off, but they were doing something totally contrary to what God expected them to do if they would be pure before him. And seeking purity before God. It's our tendency to often default to rules over relationship. And it's hard for us to believe we sometimes misinterpret the Old Testament. God has always, always, always been concerned with the heart. You know what the Jews thought that the greatest command was in the entire Old Testament? And Jesus said they were right when they quoted it. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. That was the number one commandment. That was the way that Jesus himself said that he would sum up the Old Testament law. It was never about the externals alone. It was always about the relationship. It was about the heart. And yet man for thousands of years, all the way from Isaiah's time to Jesus' time to now, can't help but get away from the relationship into their own list of rules and regulations because that's so much easier to follow. You have the Roman Catholic Church with its symbols and structures and ceremonies. You do your eight sacraments, and you can hope that you're in. It's nice to be able to check off a box. I mean, even the Mormon Church or the Jehovah's Witnesses have their weekly evangelistic trips, or the Mormons in particular have their temple worship. It's just good to know that if you made it to a certain place, and if you did a certain thing on the weekend, that you can feel good about yourself before God. I grew up in hyper-fundamentalist churches that made people feel good for the way that they dressed, the music that they listened to, and how many times they would respond to an altar call at the end of a message. In fact, I was even in a youth ministry that graded the kids on their obedience to Jesus with this analysis point program, and I would literally, I'm not kidding, check off boxes saying how many days I read my Bible, if I brought my Bible to church, if I went to visitation, and here's the kicker, it wasn't just as a teenager, four years of Bible college, I had to fill out a report like that every week. And you know what? You feel pretty good about yourself when you're checking off some boxes and turning them into somebody else. I may have been struggling with sin more than I ever had in my entire life, but those boxes were getting checked off, and I felt really good about myself. I even won some awards. But all the while, my heart was far away from my Lord. I want to be careful. I know that all of you didn't come from the same kind of crazy fundamentalist background that I did, but you know what Christianity as a whole faces this threat? So easily. Because I would just totally conjecture here, I don't have any stats to prove this up, but if I had to guess, I would think 90% of the people who claim Christian would think that they are a Christian because of two things. One, they go to church. Two, they're trying to be a good person. If you're here today and you think that those two things that you could do, going to church and trying, emphasis on trying to be a good person, somehow makes you right with the Lord, 
You could never be, and I say this in the, in the same spirit that Jesus would say it in this text, you could never be more wrong. The gospel is not merely the addition of a religious mask or some external, but it's an internal heart change from self to Savior, from faith alone and Christ alone that changes us to someone else. Being clean before God does not consist of what you do, but what Christ Himself has done. A big difference between the two. Rituals, as Jesus will go on to say, only make the impurity worse. Notice how He condemns them specifically with this illustration in verses 9 through 13. He says, and He said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition." For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Did you catch the emphasis? Jesus now finally stops using the term tradition of men and he calls it for what it is. He says, these are your rules. You made these things up to feel good about yourself. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven times in those verses he uses a second person plural pronoun to say, this is you, you did this. He even says it sarcastically. He says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. He's complimenting them for being crooked. You're really good at ignoring what God wants you to do. And the specific example that he gives here, we need to move quickly with this because it's not the emphasis of the text, but it's a beautiful illustration of why tradition just doesn't work. What's the fourth commandment? You know that one. Honor your father and your mother. And then he, he quotes the backup verse on that that clarifies it even further. Honor didn't just mean pay lip service to your mom and dad or say, yes ma'am, no ma'am, yes sir, no sir. It meant like actually support them, take care of them. The word honor traditionally in the Bible deals not just with words, but also with financial support. And so what you see here is like they were supposed to be showing dignity and love and respect and they were supposed to be assisting them financially in their moment of need. And may I just make a side note here? Fourth commandment's still in play. We all have a responsibility to take care of our parents when they get older. And we have a responsibility, by the way, as a church to hold other people to that same standard. It is the family's responsibility to take care of their own parents. And some of you are saying, well, duh. Well, they didn't think this. Something as obvious as the fourth commandment, something that in Old Testament law was actually connected to capital punishment. If you didn't take care of your mom and your dad, you would be killed. This isn't some little hand-washing event. This was something major that they had broken. And how did they get out of it? How did they weasel out of this command? Through tradition. They made up a tradition. They made up a rule. You know what the rule was? It was called korban. Kermod, as it's translated here, means a gift to God. They would simply say this, you know what, I know that I have a financial obligation to care for my parents, but I'm going to give this money to the temple. I'm going to give this money to God. And as such, they weren't allowed to give the money to anybody else anymore. 
So when their parents would come to them and say that they had a need, they would be like, Corban, I'm sorry, I already gave this to the temple, and I'm not allowed to give it to anybody else. Well, isn't that convenient? In some cases, the people would actually already give the property or the money to the temple, and then their parents would fall on hard times, and guess what? It was the Jewish religious leaders who wouldn't give them that money back so that they could care for their parents. That's why it says it would not allow them to obey the fourth commandment. It was a crooked system. And they made it up. They, they made a law that made it possible for them to do whatever they want. And Jesus is showing us here that this kind of tradition, man-made rules, will always lead to more impurity and defilement. Always. This past week, I don't know why. It's not just because I have five kids, but it, it's been other kids too that I've interacted with. And I've been learning something interesting about elementary age kids they have a fascinating ability to make up rules on the spot to get what they want. I mean, they are conniving. Some of the terms that I've heard in this week, in the past seven days, jinx, no tag backs, plus one, and an infinity plus one. Now, jinx means that you have to be quiet so they can get the other person to stop talking because they said another word at the same time. The other one was my daughter and I were playing tag, and I just kept tagging her back every time she would tag me. And so she made up this rule like, no tag backs. And then I was like, well, what's, that's not in the rules of tag. I'm like, where did that come from? And then you, of course, the classic. And you've all done this one, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, well, plus one. And then somehow, if you make up a higher number, like your argument holds more weight than the other person's. What the Pharisees are doing here is just as childish. They literally made up a rule to escape the clear command of God. Man-made religion is always an attempt to get what he wants as opposed to what God said. Man-made traditions, by the way, even God-ordained religious rituals, apart from a relationship from him, that's the key there, cannot restrain sin. You know that just showing up to church on Sunday can't keep you from sinning? You know that if you've been baptized, that that doesn't keep you from sinning? Do you know that just because you go and confess to a priest that doesn't cleanse your soul before God? Or because you do some prolonged form of meditation, that may make your mind feel better, but it does nothing for your soul. Don't be deceived. This is what Jesus is saying. This doesn't work. This remedy, this way of fixing your sin problem will not work ever, period. So I hope you see why I say that this is pretty negative. Purification doesn't come through some concocted religious performance. By implication, it only comes through a relationship with Christ. But this isn't the only corrective that he serves them. It's not just about the flawed remedy for impurity, but he also corrects their superficial identity of impurity. The superficial identity of impurity. He wants to correct that. Look at Mark 7.14. He's going to state a principle here, and basically the principle is this. Impurity is an inside job. Verse 14, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Do you get what's going on here? He's been in confrontation with the Pharisees, and it doesn't happen very often in Mark, but he actually calls everybody to him. He calls the crowd to him and says, Look, listen up. 
Hear what I'm about to say. You need to understand this. Here's the principle. Defilement is an inside thing. He wants everybody to know it. And what's happening in the next verses is that Jesus is going to mention the terms inside or outside. Inside, outside, inside, outside. Ten times in nine verses. To show us that it's not an external thing, but it's an internal thing. It's not an outside thing, but an inside thing. And so he explains the principle for his disciples in verses 17 to 19. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Now, you may not remember this, but back in chapter 4, we learned that Jesus had promised that he would explain more to those who wanted to know more. And so Jesus here follows his promise. His disciples want to know more. They inquire of him. He gives them a better explanation. And his explanation this time isn't just impurity is an inside job. He says impurity is not an outside job. He actually says it in a different way. And something interesting takes place here because the language is earthy. You know what I mean by earthy? It's kind of crass. It's, it's blunt. He basically says external things like food don't penetrate the heart. Impurity and its remedy are not a matter of externals. When you actually see this verse in your text, look at it in your Bibles. It says, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. You'll see a little number there. This might be helpful for you some when you're doing your Bible study. And there will be a note typically down at the bottom. So mine has a six. And here's what the Greek says literally. It goes out into the latrine. It goes down the toilet. I mean, it's just really stark language. He says, this doesn't do anything for you. That these food laws that you're so concerned about from the Old Testament, he expands what he's talking about now, not to rituals, but to something that God himself had prescribed. He says, this, just, this doesn't affect the inside of you. It doesn't go into your heart. It just goes in and it goes right back out. And what he does here, because you see this little parenthesis, thus he declared all foods clean, he does something shocking, he does something authoritative, he does something that would have blown them away. He provides an updated interpretation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, they just naturally thought that, you know what, it is an outside-in thing. Like, if you touched mold, you were unclean, and if... You ran into a dead, I mean, you touched a dead body, you were unclean. Just stuff could constantly happen to you. And Jesus changes the interpretation or updates the interpretation in such a way where he says that cleanliness before God would now be exclusively a heart matter, not a ritualistic one. He not only cuts through their tradition, but he recalibrates their entire understanding of the Old Testament. And this would have huge implications for the New Testament church. When you're reading through the epistles, you're like, What's the big deal with food? Why are these people always fighting over food? This guy doesn't think that he can fellowship with this guy because he bought food offered to idols. And this guy thinks he's better than this guy because he didn't buy food that was offered to idols. And I mean, they're just always quibbling over food. Galatians was even about that. And yet, it gets back to what Jesus said here. This was the authority. He was finally telling them, look, we're going to keep the focus even more on the heart. Because that's where the problem is. Look at verse 20. He elaborates and said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. 
All these evil things come from within, and they defile the person. So here's the basic teaching. Our impurity before God, if it's going to be remedied, it must be remedied at the root level, at the heart of man. Heart. It's so easy for us as Americans to look at the little emoji on our phone and think that heart means affection and love. It could mean part of that. But in the Greek and Hebrew world, heart just simply meant the inner man, the self, who you really are. My kids, for some reason or another, have watched several shows over the last couple years, and I don't know why this is a theme in children's television, but um, they love to write in scenarios where, where people switch bodies like accidentally or whatever, like a machine accidentally switches somebody's body to someone else. But what's interesting, though, is even in those cartoons, they get the idea that regardless of your body, one self can be moved to another self. Now, we know that that can't happen. It's hypothetical. But we get the idea that regardless of what our body looks like, we're still the same person fundamentally on the inside. It's not just the mind. It's not just blood vessels and muscles and bone. There's something more. And Jesus says that's where the problem is. That part of you that food can't touch, that is the root of the problem. And the focus here is on evil thoughts. He said it's from here that evil thoughts, evil designs, another way you could say it's evil machinations. I like that. Like machines, like this, this thought process comes out and it expresses itself in attitudes and actions. There's fruit. So the root is the heart. The fruit is the bad actions and attitudes that defile. These are the things that God's really concerned about. Not whether or not you eat pork or beef for lunch, but what's in here and then what comes out of there. The list does not need specific detail, but a cumulative impression is enough to make the point. I could walk through each of these words, and I, I will do that in a moment, but I just want you to get the overall idea. I mean, he lists 12 different things here. In the Greek, the first six are plural. The last six are singular, conveying to us the idea that whether it be these things in a plurality or these things as a consistent, just one-off shot, it all comes from the heart. This is why Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. In the King James, it says desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's why John Calvin called the human heart a factory of idols. Now, doesn't this stand, this, I mean, just this, these few minutes, just listening to me explain these few verses, doesn't this stand in direct opposition to one of our most popular assumptions? At least for me, for me growing up in the South, it was common to say, but he's got a good heart. He's got good intentions. Or actually, in my evangelism with some of those people who claim that everybody is just a good-hearted person. When you confront them personally, typically, and I don't know what it is about these two things, but I've heard this response probably more than any other as people try to justify their own standing before God. Maybe you've heard this. I'm not an axe murderer. I haven't robbed a bank. As if like those were the only two commandments that God gave. Well, I didn't, yeah, I didn't kill anybody with an axe, and I didn't rob a bank lately, so I'm okay before God. Interestingly, we need to remember that 
God's list of that which defiles is not merely murdering someone with an axe or robbing a bank. It's the things that he just listed here. That's God's standard. These are the things that God himself, through the person of Jesus, has said defiles. And his list, as we've seen, includes actions and, wait for it, affections. And it's his interpretation of the law, not yours, that matters. I know this is a little intense, but can we take a minute together? And let's evaluate the claim that we're all good-hearted people. I'm only going to do it for less than two minutes. I'll look at my clock. Less than two minutes. Let's evaluate the claim as to whether or not we are really good people. We're going to put Scripture to the test right now and see if impurity and defilement is something that's out there it's the behavior, it's our, the way that our parents treated us, it's the environment that we grow up in, or if it's something in here. Here's the question. Have these things ever been in your heart, or are they presently in your heart? Are you ready? We're going to go through the list. Look at it. Sexual immorality. By the way, the word for sexual immorality here is the Greek word porneia, from which we get the word pornography. It refers to fornication, porn, illicit sexual relationships outside of the marriage context. It can include homosexuality as well. The next one, theft. Whether it's a paperclip or a million dollars. Stealing money from the government is still stealing. Stealing time at work when you should be working, doing something else is stealing. Does that happen? Does somebody make you do that, or did that come from in here? Murder. Jesus actually says that it's not just the physical act of murder, but it's actually any hatred that you would have in your heart for someone else. Adultery. Breaking your marriage vow, or wanting to. Coveting. Wanting that which belongs to someone else. I'm sure that doesn't happen in Naples. Wickedness. Bad behavior toward others. Just being mean. Deceit. By the way, you're lying if you say no to that one. (laughs) We know that's true. Sensuality, it's a craving for the senses over the spiritual. It's typically sexual in nature. If I were to give you an illustration of what this sin would look like, it'd be most of the magazines that are sold at the grocery store. And their incessant infatuation with sex. If you clamor for that type of information on a regular basis, I'm not saying looking for pornography, but just always just wanting to know how you can gratify yourself more effectively. Jesus says that that defiles. Envy, jealous for other people's status or success, not just their stuff. Slander, talking bad about others. Pride, thinking too highly or often of yourself. And then foolishness, just a general disregard for things that matter. Jesus says if any of these things are true of you, if they come from within you, that is evidence of a defiled heart. Now that's hard to swallow. And in a nutshell, basically, Jesus is done here. He's he's told us that our rituals cannot cleanse us. Our impurity is deeper than we could ever imagine. It's actually in here when we thought it was out there. And I have to admit, I even talked to a pastor about this this weekend. I was like, you know what? I really liked last week a lot better. I liked last Sunday. But when I get to the end of this, 
And I've got people looking at me, and I have to talk to them when they walk out the door. Like, I know that this seems discouraging. I know that it could make you feel helpless. And so we have to ask the question, then, what's the solution? Like, do we just leave it here? Is it like a song that ends on a minor key, and we just kind of let it hang? Before I offer the remedy, let me defend this seemingly relentless and offensive diagnosis from Jesus with an illustration from history. The most disastrous nuclear power plant accident in history in both cost and casualties occurred on April the 26th, 1986 in the number four light water graphite moderated reactor at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the USSR. I was reading about it this past year in the Pulitzer Prize winning book, Voices of Chernobyl. I was fascinated by the tragedy, but what became more interesting to me in reading the book was not just the damage that was caused, but the cover-up that surrounded it. For us as Americans, it was just so obvious, like something really bad happened. But as I read account after account of the people who were going through the accident at the time, the government, to protect its communism and what it could do, minimized the results of what had happened and didn't tell the people what was going on. So American news media is, is telling truth and they're keeping it suppressed there because they don't want anybody to think that the communist government didn't know how to run a nuclear power plant. It was shocking. The visible or the invisible radiation had poisoned miles of places and thousands of people all without explanation. They relocated some of the people but thousands, thousands of lives were lost because authorities didn't own up to the pervasiveness of the destruction, nor did they know how to contain its consequences. When you do the research to find out how these people handled it, their strategy was twofold. One, that they would fly helicopters over and dump dirt on top of it, which they found out was actually making it worse. And the second thing was they were hiring guys at a ridiculous amount of money to come in and liquidate this nuclear trash by burying it in the ground, ultimately sending thousands of these volunteers to their deaths. The machinery began to break down first. You could see it in the first few years. The bodies began to break down within the next 10. All the while, no explanation of the devastation that had been caused by that act of irresponsibility. Contrary to the Soviet government's plan and strategy in 86, what we have here in Romans 7 is official warning from the Lord of the universe about the depth and the pervasiveness of our sin. As harsh as this may seem, this is an act of mercy to us. This is God's grace. We need to know the truth and how bad it really is so that we're not tricked into thinking we can just bury some things under the ground and go along like nothing ever happened. The contamination of sin is worse than you could ever imagine even though you cannot see it all the time. The situation that we're in apart from Christ is horrific, it's catastrophic, and the text basically calls out to us and says, you need to be cleansed. 
But here's the question. How? How? Well, the obvious Sunday school answer is that Christ is our cleansing. But I need to be able to justify that from Scripture, and so should you. Where do you see in these verses Christ explain himself to be the solution to this problem? Does anybody see it? I don't. I don't see it in these verses. And the reason why Mark doesn't present the answer to the dilemma in this text is because he's already presented it. See, what you need to remember as we're reading something like Mark 7, 1 through 23, is that people typically heard this at one sitting. So, so far, in this same sitting, they would have heard the beginning and remember that Jesus, the divine Messiah, had the authority to touch the defiled and to deliver them. Remember what happened at the end of chapter 1 when he touched the leper? He didn't become unclean, he made the leper clean. Do you remember what happened when he hung out with the, hung out with the sinners in chapter 2? They said that he was unclean, but he said through that he could seek and save the lost. Do you remember what happened with the man with the withered hand in chapter 3? Jesus wasn't supposed to be able to touch him, and yet he did. He didn't become defiled. He actually brought deliverance. And then the demon-possessed man dwelling in the tombs in chapter 5? Unclean. And yet once he is confronted with Jesus, he's delivered. The contamination doesn't affect Jesus, but this man is consecrated, clean, pure, in the presence of Christ. Or the woman with the issue of blood. Or the girl that was dead, both unclean by Levitical law. And in both cases, Jesus just shows up and provides cleansing. And so Mark already has shown us the solution to the problem. Jesus cleanses our contamination. This isn't a reading into the text. This is the point of Mark. The Pharisees can't do it. Rituals can't do it. Superficial acts can't do it. Only our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ can fix this thing. Sinful hearts may defile us, but Christ is our cleansing. Don't you just love 1 John 1, 9? It says that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Another one of my favorites is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, or 9 through 11. He lists many of the sins that Jesus lists here, and then he just changes tone in verse 11 and says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the Spirit of our God. Or maybe Isaiah chapter 1 is helpful for you. Memorize this as a kid. It became the basis for the wordless book that so many of us use to evangelize others as children. Where Isaiah, speaking on behalf of the Lord, says, Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white like crimson. Though they are red, they shall be white as snow. Cleansing comes from the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. And what does this mean for you? What does this mean for us? How do we walk out of here today not just thinking we're defiled before the Lord? There's two things and only two that we can do with this that I know of. One is to ensure, make sure, think about, consider whether or not you have responded in faith to this Jesus. Responded in faith to Jesus. Not 
Go get baptized, join the church, give a certain amount of money, go confess to a priest, go do a mission trip. No, it is respond in faith to Jesus alone. Not anything else, not the tradition of men. He's the only one that has the power to purify and repentance and belief in the gospel is your only solution. So you need to make sure that that's happened today. The only other thing you say, you know what, Justin, I've done that. You know what this text reminds us? It reminds us when we have those moments of nagging guilt, whether it's something big from the past, or whether it's our, our incessant failures in the present, or whether it's some of those things just that we can't control. We just need to remember that we are clean before God. We need to remember that. I think that the disciples here, when they first read this, would have warmed their waning hearts at the fires of his love and forgiveness. We have to, as some would say, preach the gospel to ourselves. This is not just for the unsaved. This is for you, dear Christian. You with the plagued conscience. You who sometimes feels dirty before God. You are clean in His sight. All unrighteousness has been covered by His blood. And that is why, by the way, we're even going to do communion in a few minutes. Let's be crystal clear about something. What we're about to do with that bread and that juice will not cleanse you of sin. But let me tell you what it does. It reminds you of the cleansing that has already taken place. If you've placed your faith and trust in Him. So I know of no better way to close this service than for us to prepare our hearts to remember our Lord in communion. And then maybe to take this forward from this moment and remind ourselves throughout the week of the cleansing that Christ himself has provided for us. Let's begin this time together around the table uh, with a song. Bill's going to come and lead us as we prepare our hearts for a time around the table. And then I'll come back and lead us for communion.